We'll open your Bibles to Romans chapter 9 again. Romans, the ninth chapter. As we wade into some very, very important waters in Paul's understanding and his deliberation about the nation of Israel, their past, their present, and their future, especially as it regards to God and the covenant that God made with them. How could God be faithful? How is his credibility to be understood in the midst of the fact that the Jews rejected the Messiah? Well, that's what Paul turns his attention to in Romans chapter 9. You'll remember that last week we studied uh, the first few verses. Actually, the first last two weeks we studied the first 13 verses. If you're just joining us in this study, you are, you're kind of walking into the middle of a discussion that Paul has begun with us. It's not, um, uh, these verses are not intended to be understood in isolation. He's been speaking about the fact that God is sovereign, which means he exercises choice and his will, not only in nations, but in individuals. Specifically here, he's talking about his promise to the Jews that he gave in the Old Testament that he will fulfill one day in the future, even though they've rejected their Messiah. That leads him into understanding the issue of God's choice. Why choose the Jews? Why choose uh, one group over another? Why did Abraham get chosen and no one else? This idea of God's sovereign choice comes to the forefront in Paul's thinking here, and he addresses it. You'll remember last week we studied the fact that God chose two sons over their older brothers to be the inheritors of the blessing. One, he specifically looks at, uh, you can look back into verse, um, well, you can pick it up in verse 10. There was Rebekah when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that the purpose, God's purpose, the purpose of God according to his choice would stand not only because of the works but because of him who calls, the younger, the older will end up serving the younger. In other words, these men were chosen. Their destiny was laid out before they were born. And then he adds to the fact of this happened before they were born, before they'd done anything good or evil. Well, that leads to the question that Paul knows you and I would have. Is that right? Is that, what's the word? Fair. Is that just? So he answers that by anticipating our question in verse 14. What shall we say then? God chooses one for uh, his, his own. He dismisses another. He actually loves one and hates the other. What shall we say then to this? Then he, he gives the supposition in the form of a question and an answer. There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but it depends on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, 
For this purpose, very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. One of the most intuitive statements that flows from any child's heart and certainly exists in our own world today is to look at a situation that we feel like has not been even-handed and to deduce that's not fair. I want you to listen to this imaginary conversation that J.I. Packer uh, proposes in his excellent essay entitled, Is God Unfair? He says this, <coughs> quote, No, life isn't fair, said the journalist who lived and was touring, whose livelihood was touring the world to de- uncover disasters. Earthquakes, tsunamis, famines, floods, pandemics, volcanic eruptions, they just happen, and that's all you can say about them. You can work it out afterwards, maybe what triggered at least some of them, but you cannot predict them with any accuracy. And you certainly cannot foresee how much damage they will do. They kill thousands at a time and ruin lives of thousands more, maybe millions sometimes. They turn this lovely world into a tragic mess, and when you've seen them close up close, as I have, you'll know better than to shrug them off and say that they don't matter. Life is not fair, and there, if there is a God who runs the show, he isn't fair either, for it's always the nice folk who seem to suffer most. Genetics certainly isn't fair, said the doctor, whose specialty was genetic disorders. Physical and mental handicaps are randomly passed on by genetic transmission. Some babies are marked for misery and from birth, and all you can offer them is palliative care. There is no cure possible. If you had to talk to parents and relatives the way I have sometimes had to do, you would appreciate how awful this reality really is. I believe in God. I think most people do, but sometimes I find myself thinking, how unfair how downright cruel it seem, he seems to be. I'm sure many of those who are in these situations feel the same. Well, I've certainly found myself feeling that God is unfair many times these last few months, said the investment overseer. I was bamboozled and bankrupted by a, a man in, in, in the church whom I had known for years. We set this Christian business up together as a Christian firm. We prayed about it, talked about it. I prayed a lot about it on my own. He ended up fiddling with the books, absconded with the money, and left me with nothing. I felt like God was laughing at me, and it wasn't a good feeling. Christian publisher, excuse me, a publisher then says, a lot of Christians paint themselves into a corner where they cannot help tagging God as unfair. They say that God loves everyone and that everything is under his control. So the way he wrecks some lives, though not others, is certainly unfair. If they say God loves some people but not all people, that is unfair in itself. And yet, you know, the Bible tells us that God plays favorites in just that way. 
You know the little rhyme that says, How odd of God to choose the Jews. Well, according to the Bible, he did that. And he told the Jews to kill a lot of other tribes to make room for themselves when they invaded Palestine. And sometimes he did the killing himself when the Jews were under threat. If that isn't playing favorites, I don't know what is. Nowadays, we've got Bible bashers who insist that God loves nobody but the elect, whoever they are. Is the God of all that callous elitism unfair? As the Bible says, as the Brits say, rather, not half. The God, the God I think I believe in isn't like that at all. Packer goes on to write, by this time, all of these men were looking at Bill, who was a believer, a Christian. Bill, said the journalist, you've heard what we've just said. If you think that we're getting at you, I won't say you're wrong. You've often told us that you are an old-fashioned Orthodox Christian who believes the Bible from cover to cover. Be honest now. Don't you agree that your God has a lot to answer to? Can't you see that if he exists at all, he is terribly, terribly unfair? End quote. The question of the fairness of God is the central issue in this final section of the book of Romans. Romans chapter 9, rather. Is God fair? Has he done something unfair? The last half of Romans 9 will continually address that. Now, a little back up. In the first 13 verses, Paul has explained that God's choice of the Jews, some of the Jews for salvation, doesn't seem fair. Why did he make this promise to the nation this, this Israelite nation, and then only choose some of them who would believe the Messiah, and the rest seem to be on their way to a Christless eternity. Is that fair? And Paul's answer is, no, if you're going to say, is, is it fair that God chooses one and not the other, you've got to go all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You had Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael was the firstborn by Sarah's calculation and her ingenuity, and Ishmael was born, but he wasn't the child of the promise that God promised to Sarah and Abraham. So then Isaac was born. Then to Isaac were born Jacob and Esau. Esau was born first. Remember the interesting story where he's born as a twin first, and, and um, Jacob comes out holding on to his ankle. And yet, the child of the promise was the second born. Not only that, if you follow the careers and the lives of Jacob and Esau, you see that Jacob didn't turn out to be any great saint, and Esau didn't turn out to be some demonic murderer. What was going on with this choosing, even before they were born? God chose one. He didn't choose the other. He actually said he loved one, and he disdained or hated the other. Which leads to the question, is that fair? Is that right? This text is really about the Jews, some who were chosen, some who weren't, but also the character of God extends beyond that to where we see all people are in the category of chosen or not. Just a little footnote, I was um, <coughs> in staff meeting this last week and we were talking about 
the speed that we took through Romans 8. And uh, we, we went pretty, pretty slowly through Romans 8. Lots of things to talk about. Lots of little rooms in this big mansion to explore. Uh, at practical applications about God's care over every detail. And it was important to stop and slow down there to, to mine all that's there. And by the same token, I think it was Aaron who said to me, you seem to be going pretty fast through Romans 9. And there's a reason for that. And the reason for that is that Paul moves very fast through this issue. He, he says things without any footnotes, any contractual writers, any appendices. He just says them and he expects us to understand and, and accept them, even if we don't necessarily like them. In verse 6, Paul uh, has explained that God's word has, has been given. His promises never fail even though Israel had failed, God's promises had. And then he, he reaffirms the blessing of being in the covenant relationship with God is not a matter of being Jewish or having ancestral ties to Abraham, but being of faith. It's not about your bloodline. It's about the grace of God. So at the heart of Paul's thinking here in Romans 9 is this idea. If God has made salvation a matter of grace and had rejected the Jews who sought it by works or attempts at keeping the law, has God been unjust or unfaithful to his promise? Well, that leads us to look at God's justice, which is another way, but not an exact parallel, of asking about God's fairness. So let's dissect this together and look at three considerations of God's justice. Three considerations of God's justice. The first is in verse 14. It is unthinkable that God would act unjustly. It is unthinkable, at least in the mind of Paul, and he expects that to extend to you and me, it is unthinkable that God would act unjustly. He asked the question he knows would be asked, Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. What shall we say then, verse 14, And how he asks the question is really interesting. Look at how he does. He says, there is no injustice with God. Is there? See the double negative there? He's asking, is God just? There is no injustice with God. Is there? He adopts the rhetorical device of giving voice to his obvious objectors. Now, this is something he does all the way through Romans. Let me belabor this for a moment. Romans chapter 3, verse 5. He says, what shall we say? Chapter 4, verse 1, what shall we say? Chapter 6, verse 1, what shall we say then? Chapter 7, verse 7, what shall we say then? Chapter 8, verse 31, what shall we say to these things? And chapter 9, verse 30, what shall we say then? He makes statements that he knows people will have heartburn over and says, what are we to say to this? Let, Let me help you understand what I've just said is what Paul does. So here's what he's talking about. God has restricted his promise to Isaac and to Jacob instead of to Ishmael and to Esau. Even more specifically, he chose Jacob and rejected Esau before either of them had even breathed their first breath. Let me state it in as clear terms as Paul did. Jacob was not chosen because he was good and Esau was not rejected because he was bad. The point is this choice was made by God's sovereign will before they had even lived outside the womb. He makes that point in his previous passage. 
So the question becomes, well, is that right? Is that fair? Why would he choose one and not the other? It's interesting that Paul doesn't ask the question we've been begging this morning. He doesn't ask, is that fair? He asks, is that just? The issue of fairness is not a safe place that we ought to run in this argument. When we talk about fairness, we're talking about giving people either everything evenly or giving them what they deserve. Um, I have a house with three sons, and when my wife would cut up dessert, because we didn't use a metric ruler all the time, there were bigger pieces than other pieces. And when one would get the bigger piece, the one would get the smaller piece, one would say to the other, that's not fair. Because the expectation is we all deserve the same blessing, and we all deserve it in the same amount. Can I just beg you to not run to that as a way to answer, ask or answer this question? Now, let me say something, and I'll back it up and explain it, okay? This is good news. God is not fair. And we should be really thankful for that. If God were fair, he would give us what we deserve and give everybody what they deserve equally, and that would be eternity in a Christless hell because of each one of our individual sin against the Almighty. That's what we deserve. If God was fair, we wouldn't be breathing right now. We would be dead because of our sins. Praise God, he is not fair. He's better than that. He's just. Remember what Genesis 18, 25 says? Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly or rightly or righteously or do what's right and what's best? And that's what's best according to him. Paul deals with the issue of justice because that's a characteristic. That's an attribute of God. When you pull open books on the attributes of God, you'll see omniscience, omnipresence, uh, graciousness, uh, loving kindness. You'll see all sorts of attributes. What you won't find in most orthodox or really good theologies is a chapter on God's fairness. It's a short chapter. We deserve hell. He offers heaven. End of chapter. Which leads Paul to ask the question, is there any injustice with God? I mean, he chooses some, he doesn't choose it. Is this wrong? Is this unjust? Is this not right according to his character? Look at the last phrase. Me genoito in the Greek. It's the strongest way he can say it. May it never be. May it never be concluded. No way. God forbid that he would be or act unjustly. It is unthinkable that God would act unjustly. Unthinkable. But that needs further explanation and further consideration. Number two, it is astonishing that God would act mercifully to anyone. It's astonishing that God would act mercifully to anyone. Verse 15, for he, that is God, says to Moses... I will have mercy on, drumroll, whom I have mercy, and 
I will have compassion on, drum roll, whom I have compassion. Have you noticed that's not really an answer at all? It's not really an answer at all. You all understand that. Remember, Dad, this is probably you and me, Dad, too. <clears throat> you tell your child something. and Why do I have to do that, Dad? Because I... And the point is, because I said so, the point is not that there's not a reason. We have reasons for saying that. The point is, serving you would not include giving you this reason. Now, much should be learned here from both Paul's answer and how he answers the question about God's justice or God's fairness. Don't miss what Paul does and don't miss what he does not do here. Instead of providing this long explanation of, of how this works out, and I would have loved to have had a long explanation of how this works out, instead of doing that and appealing to our human reasoning, he appeals to Scripture. He goes back and quotes Exodus 33, verses 18 and 19. Now, a little background on Exodus 33. Exodus 33 follows Exodus 30. You're good. Exodus 32. Do you remember what happens in Exodus 32? The golden calf. And God says, I, because of my righteousness and my holiness and your violation of that, I deem that you are worthy of being judged and punished and wiped off the face of the earth. Moses then begs and pleads and prays, God, no, please. In the midst of that answer, it's a very intriguing uh, uh, scene there in Exodus 33 where you know, God used to meet with... Um, uh, Moses in the, in, in, the, in the wilderness, the pillar of fire by night, the pillar of cloud by day. He says, I'm going to take that away. I'm going to meet with you in what's called the tent of meeting. Moses would pitch a tent outside the tent, outside the camp, remember? God would meet with him there and talk with him face to face as a man speaks with his friend. He says, God, please be merciful. And then he asks something for himself. He says in verse 33, God, please, I pray you, show me your glory. Show me your glory. Show me your existence. Show me your essence, your, your you-ness, your godness. Show me your glory. And God said, I myself will make all of my goodness pass before you. That's interesting. Show me your glory. I'll show you my goodness. In the Hebrew, show me your kavod, your glory. God says, I will show you my tov, my goodness. Meaning his glory and his goodness are parallel. They're synonyms. I'll make it pass before you. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. Moses says, show me your glory. I want to see it. God said, I will tell you my goodness. Which is why God is fundamentally a verbal God. He's left us a book, not a video. And then he says this. I will pass before you and I will tell you this. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and show compassion on whom I will show compassion. Really interesting. Let me give you a little bit of a, a background on, on why what Moses says here is different than what Paul says in quoting it in chapter 9 of Romans. There's something in between. This is the Hebrew text that's translated in English. 
there was a Hebrew text, and during Jesus' time, during Paul's time, there was the Greek translation of that Hebrew text, Hebrew text called the Septuagint. That was what Jesus almost primarily, almost exclusively used to quote. Uh, it's what Paul uses almost exclusively to quote. That was what everyone understood. So when, when the Septuagint looks at this verse, it synonizes, synonym, it makes synonyms out of grace and mercy. Is there a word, verb for that, synonize? We're going to say synonizes them. It makes them synonyms, grace and mercy, which we looked at last week is the same concept with two sides of the same coin. Grace is giving you and me what we don't deserve. Mercy is not giving us what we do deserve. So he says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, or I will be merciful on whom I will be merciful. I will decide who to give my grace to. I will decide who to extend my mercy towards. And I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. The point is unmistakable. God has absolute freedom and prerogative to dispense mercy and compassion and grace on whomever he wishes and whomever he wills. Context here is very important. Israel had just sinned in chapter 32. Moses says, please be merciful. He says, I will, but I will be merciful only on the one I desire and direct mercy towards He gives it discriminately, but according to his own will, as he desires. God's answer to Moses is ultimately the answer to the question of election. It's God's choice sourced in the wisdom of his character. And let me just say, I I don't know that I can go any further than that. It's God's choice based or sourced in the wisdom of his character, which is always just. So he understands what you're thinking, and he understands what I'm thinking, so he adds verse 16. So then, it, God's choice, does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Verse 16 reiterates the principle that Paul's already taught in verses 10 and 11. Namely, that God's salvation, God's salvific mercy is not a response to man's choice of him. He buttresses this argument with two angles. Look at the first statement. God's mercy is not a response to man's choice, man's will, or man's resolve. So then it does not depend on the man who wills. God did not look, as I was taught when I was a young man, down the corridors of time and see who would choose him, and he grabbed those people, and that's whom he chose. That's not what he's saying here. It doesn't depend on a man who wills or reasons, a man who resolves. God's mercy is not a response to man's choice of God. It doesn't even depend on it at all. It's independent based on the character and the wisdom of God. And then he goes on to a second. God's mercy is not a response to human human effort, to no one's trying harder or being better. Or the man who runs, who exerts effort. God's mercy is not a response to man's choice, will, resolve, or to man's effort. So what's God's mercy based upon? It's based on God. Look at the last part of the verse. Who has mercy. Now we're back to his his character. 
his being, his own choosing. Leon Morris writes, It is important to be clear that before God we have no rights. That's why mercy is so important for sinners. He chooses to have mercy on who he has mercy. That's all we get. That's all, all he tells us. Except to say, as many as believed, John 1, 12, as many as believed, he gave a right to become children of God. So we, how do we know if we were chosen by God? We believe. That's it's real simple. Only those who will believe, who believe are chosen, and only those who choose will actually believe. Well, I just beg you, do you know this mercy of God? Don't get tripped up into election, predestination, foreknowledge. Don't get tripped up to that at the expense of seeing the simplicity of just believe. It is astonishing that God would act mercifully to anyone. He did in Exodus 33 after the people had... What they do there is remarkable. Remember what, what happened there? They... They said, Moses, may, or Aaron rather, Aaron, make us a God who will go before us. We don't know what happened to Moses. So Aaron makes this golden cap, tells, tells everyone to tear the gold rings out of their, uh, their ears and noses and all their jewelry. They, he makes this little cow. And he doesn't say, here's your new God, Israel. Remember what he says? This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. He's saying, this is the true and living God we have now reduced to a handleable cow. Wow. And God extended mercy by not killing them all immediately, but he extinguishes his justice by saying, you're not all going to end up going into Canaan. It's amazing that he would act mercifully to anyone knowing their sin and our sin. But that will make more sense in a moment. Number three. <clears throat> it is undeniable that God would harden whom he hardens, whom he desires. It is undeniable that God would harden whom he desires. You say, harden, that's an active verb, that God is hardening people? What, what is this about? He explains in verse 17, the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you. So Pharaoh is a pawn in the hand of the Almighty, even though Pharaoh was doing wicked and wrong things, unjust and unfair things to the children of Israel. He was used by God to show God's power. He was going to demonstrate his defeat of Pharaoh and all of the gods of Egypt. And that my name, Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, the God who became Jesus, my name would be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then, God, he, has mercy on whom he desires. And, and he hardens whom he desires. Now Paul comes at the argument from the opposite side. Not only he gives mercy on whom he gives, but what about the other side? the people who don't receive mercy. Well, he stays in the book of Exodus to continue his explanation. If you want to be technical, he's, in his argument, he uses Moses to correspond to Jacob and he uses Pharaoh to correspond to Esau. One I've loved, the other I've rejected or hated. 
And the way is, um, uh, the way he does this is introducing the quotation of Exodus 9.16. But he does it in an unusual way. Look at what he says in verse 17. Have you noticed this before? For the scripture says to Pharaoh, stop right there. (laughs) There was no scripture when Pharaoh was around. So what does this mean? The scripture says to Pharaoh. What makes that interesting is that the scripture was yet to be written, and yet he says that. So what's he saying? Well, I think simply what Moses said to Pharaoh would be recorded in Scripture. Paul picks that up and just says, what God says through Moses and what was recorded in Scripture are the same. It's a powerful, powerful argument for the inerrancy, infallibility, and inspiration of Scripture. Paul can speak of Moses and God talking to Pharaoh in the same way he can the Scripture itself. It's the only time Paul mentions Pharaoh in any of his writings And look at what he says, for this very purpose, it's clear that God's plan was being executed through Pharaoh who was doing wicked and heinous things, and yet God was using him all the way. Paul is saying that God's purpose for Pharaoh and his place in history was that his glory and his might might be displayed. This was the most powerful human on the planet with all of the gods of Egypt at his disposal, all the magicians of Egypt at his disposal, and he could not defeat or supersede the God of Israel. Further, that God's name will be proclaimed in all the earth, and it was. You can find in ancient Near Eastern writings what Yahweh, the God of Israel, did that trumped all the gods in ancient Egypt. It's not hard to see. Remember what God did in the plagues and that preceded the Exodus? And he trumped all those plagues with his own deliverance of the people. The critical thing to observe here is that God is said to have hardened Pharaoh's heart. Let me give you a quick tour. Don't, don't, don't try to turn here because it'll, it'll be too fast. Tell me who hardened Pharaoh's heart. Let me just read you all of the passages that talk about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart from the book of Exodus. And you tell me at the end who hardened Pharaoh's heart. There's passive and there's active. Active is I harden my heart. Passive is someone hardens my heart. Someone outside of me. Exodus seven thirteen. Yet Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Exodus 7, 14, the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is stubborn. Exodus 7, 22, but the magicians of Egypt did the same with their secret arts, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them as the Lord said. Exodus 8, 15, but when the Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his own heart and did not listen to them as the Lord has said. Exodus 8, 19. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God, but Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And he did not listen to them as the Lord said. Exodus 8, 32. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also. And he did not let the people go. Exodus 9, 7. Pharaoh sent, behold, there was not even one of the livestock of Israel who were dead. Then the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. 
And he did not let the people go. Exodus 9.34, when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned again and hardened his own heart. He and his servants. Exodus 9.35, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Who hardened Pharaoh's heart, God or Pharaoh? Yes. That makes us come to this issue of reconciling God's sovereignty in general, especially in salvation, and man's responsibility. And we have to come to the place where we understand it's beyond our power, beyond our intellect, beyond our abilities to be able to reconcile God's acts and our responsibility. They work together in a mysterious way that I cannot suppose to explain to you this morning. I love what Griffith Thomas says. This is so interesting. Old saintly commentator, he says this. The Bible states and emphasizes both man's responsibility and God's sovereignty and salvation. And then leaves them. He states them and then leaves them. Thomas says, we shall be wise if we do the same. States them both. Doesn't resolve the conflict. And walks away. Now, you might be tempted to say, well, hang on. If God is sovereign over every soul, he knows before we're born whether we choose good or evil, right or wrong. How in the world can he find fault with anybody since he knows beforehand? I'm glad you asked that because look at verse 19 next week. Look at this. You will say to me then, Paul says, why does God still find fault? Well, come back next week and we'll answer that question with Paul. Here's the reality. Man is responsible for all of his decisions and God is sovereign over all of them as well. And those I I cannot reconcile, nor can I deny either one of them. In 2004 at the Shepherds Conference, I remember exactly where I was sitting. It was on the right side over here, um, listening to R.C. Sproul tell about the time when he taught a freshman Old Testament class. Now, I want you to keep these numbers straight. The class had 250 students, okay? It was a Christian college. He told them in the first class, the first meeting, that there would be three papers, one due September 30th, one due October 30th, one due November 30th. On September 30th, he received, how many are in the class? 250, right? He received 225 papers. 25 students came to him begging him for mercy. Please, Dr. Sproul, we didn't budget our time wisely. We're still going to get, uh, we're still getting used to the rigors of college. We'll do better next time. Please don't give us an F. Can we have just a little more time? And Dr. Spohl said, okay, you can have two more days to get those papers in. He had warned them in the very beginning that any late paper was going to be deemed F. Oh, thank you, Dr. Spohl. A month later, on October 30th, he received 200 papers. 50 students were late. 
And they pled and pleaded and begged, please, Dr. Sproul, we had midterms, homecoming. We had all sorts of other pressures on us. Please give us one more chance. He said, all right, you have two more days. And the students were literally singing, we love you, Professor Sproul. He was the hero. On November 30th, a month later, 150 people turned in their papers on time. 100 students were late. Where are your term papers, he asked. Don't worry about it, Dr. Sproul. We'll get them to you in a couple days. (laughs) He specifically called one, he calls this young man Johnson. Johnson, where's where's your paper? He said, don't worry, I'll get it to you in a couple days. He said, Johnson, your paper's late. You will receive an F. Johnson replied, but that's not fair. It's not fair. Sproul says, is it justice that you want? He said, yes. He said, okay. Looking at my notebook here, and you were also late on your first two papers, so I'm now changing those grades to F as well. And you have a failing grade in the whole class. Sproul explains, if we experience grace once, we're grateful. If we experience it twice, we're a bit jaded. If we experience it a third time, we expect and demand it. If God doesn't choose me, then there's something wrong with him, not me. But grace, by definition, is something God is not required to give. It is undeserved. Rather than asking why not everyone be chosen, we should ask why me? So what do you walk away with? Can I just show you one? Can I give you a deep sigh so you know what to walk out with? Ephesians chapter 1 will be finished. Ephesians 1. Paul talks about this same issue, God's election, his choosing some, his not choosing others, his hardening some, his not hardening others. The same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. Ephesians 1, 3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us, Christians, believers in Christ, before the foundation of the world, chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to, why did he do this? Why would he do this? According to the kind intention of his will. To the praise of his glory, of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in Christ, the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. How do we come to grips with this? I love Paul. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will. There it is. It's a mystery. 
You know what mysteries are in the Bible? They are things that God has not revealed. God has said he is sovereign in his choice of anyone who would ever believe. He is telling every man, believe and repent on the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we reconcile those? It's a mystery. And if we try to reconcile and resolve them, we do a disjustice and a disservice to this passage because Paul didn't go there. In fact, we'll see next week, he actually doubles down. Real quick introduction to next week. He says, who are you? How dare you ask God such a question? If you believe, put your hand over your mouth and praise him for his choice. Father, we want to understand that we can't understand. We want to embrace the mystery without disbelieving any nuance of your truth. So we believe, help our unbelief. We have faith, help our lack of faith. Give us the grace to resist the compulsion to try to resolve things that you've left in the category of mystery and to believe you and to trust you while your heads are still bowed, I, I would just beg you, the question is not, are you chosen? The question is, will you believe? Will you believe that Jesus lived a perfect life, died a death in our place as our substitute to receive the righteous wrath and judgment of Almighty God in his own body, and he died for the sins of anyone who would believe and give their faith to him? And then he rose from the grave. He didn't stay dead. To as many who believe this, he gives the right to become his children. Our prayer room is going to be open to the right, and the Schultes will be over there, Steve and Debbie. If we can talk with you, pray with you, counsel with you, we would love to be able to, to do this and serve you in any way we can. If anything, Paul turns the volume up in the rest of this chapter on this issue, not down. And we want to take God simply at his word and believe it. So, Father, give us grace and mercy. Please give us grace and mercy to believe what you said and to not try to make you say what you haven't and to give you glory because of your glorious word. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your choice of those of us who believe. We sing and we say with Paul, this is to the praise of your glorious grace. In Jesus' name, amen.